With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Rise up, 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 showtime. Just lift your eyes up. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times at this time. Rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate an issue of 21st century slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with new abolitionist and actionist Johanna Nalaya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. January 14th, 2015. Tonight on New Abolitionist Radio, we will have... Former guest George Mallinckrodt join us again. Mr. George Mallinckrodt recently testified in front of a Florida State Criminal Justice Committee where he spoke about abuse in Florida's prisons. What these documents say about slavery, our last state is, oh, I'm sorry, and what these documents say about slavery. In addition to the stories and discussion today, we begin our first profile of writers from the 21st century underground Railroad. Ricky Jackson spent 39 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. It was the longest sentence given for a wrongful conviction in American history. Our abolitionist in profile is Mumbet, 1742 to 1829. You can expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. You can find archive podcasts at newabolitionistsradio.blogspot.com. We invite you to join the conversation by calling us at one five three zero eight eight one fourteen hundred. That's one five three zero eight eight one fourteen hundred. Access code is five four nine zero three two pound. Just press star six and one to queue up from the conference line. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, brother Scotty? How you doing, Johanan? Peace. Good to we're, be here. Good to be here. We're too deep into 2015 now. <laughs> yeah, we are. Good to be here, man. Uh, as we see the, the continuation of, of this mass incarceration as the, as the rest of the world calls it, uh, modern day slavery as we know it to be, um, the symptoms and whatnot that are ex- extending, like you talked about, the, the, our new segment will be, uh, starting tonight with the exoneration profiles, um, the continued fallout from the NYPD not doing their jobs. And I mean, it looks like Pat Lynch might even be on the line now, might be going to lose his job. I mean, there's just so many things going on around this country and all of it is based on the revenues generated off of, you know, throwing people in jail and, and enslaving them and taking taxpayer dollars and the whole thing that we talk about. So we're still needed. Word. 
Still needed, man. And it's good to see the way it's uh spreading faster and faster and faster. And you know, I always say that the truth will defend itself and it will reveal itself. If you're just walking in truth, you ain't got no problem. And I'm seeing that happening right now. And uh, I'm very happy to know what's occurring. Uh, got a lot going on in the news lately. And uh late recently, I did something uh, that I guess what you would call proactive. You know, we've been talking about how the uh, various anti-slavery organizations, these NGOs across the world, never seem to consider that what is happening here in America with this prison slavery as slavery, you know? So I put together a little form letter and I sent it out and we actually got an official reply from Dr. Mustafa Ansari, who is the Dean of American <laughs> Institute of Human Rights. He's the author of the framework, which is a human rights development assist- assistance and uh, he's the author also of Political Identity, a Human Restorative Process. which And you can find all of that on the humanrightscourses.com. But it, it amazed me that somebody actually replied. Uh, I'll take a quick moment and read to you what I sent them. Uh, basically, they were looking for people to join the organization. So I sent this message that says, What is the American Institute of Human Rights Stance on Prison for Profit Punishment for Sale? a peculiar institution that processed and profited off of 20 million plus American citizens in 2014, an institution constitutionally legalized through the 13th Amendment exception clause, which allows slavery to to continue for prisoners processed through a racial and class biased justice system. And then I put in quotes, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. I closed with, I am a member of a nationwide resurgence of the original abolitionist movement, and we would like to know your official position on this matter. If you need more clarity, two artistically presented videos may help. And I gave them two videos that really help explain it all. And, you know, I didn't think anything would come from it, but he sent me back a very short message, which I broke down (laughs) over the past week. Dear Mr. Parthas, the human rights approach to incarceration is non-custodial, rehabilitative, and restorative in relation to offenders. The question is, what do we have to do to change the system? Our response is to train a cadre of UN human rights defenders and monitors to negotiate and or file actions against the U.S. criminal justice system as we believe that this is a, a an national problem. I am attaching some information on how you can be informed of a way to do this. Well, there's the reply. Uh, what do you think of the reply there, Yohanan, Scotty? Well, you know, when you first sent that to me, what I told you, I took the the uh, non-custodial comment to mean, but then you gave information to me that, that really changed my perspective. So I, I think it's just as good you just, you know, tell us what you found, because I don't know that the, the, the average layperson is going to really understand what he okay. may have really been saying there. Mind you, my purpose was to get a stance. I wanted to know, first of all, do you recognize this as slavery? Right. I'm sorry. So, I, I've been kind of distracted. We were talking about Mustafa Ansari, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Mustafa yeah. Ansari. So that was my goal, to find out if they recognize this as slavery, and if so, what is their stance on it? 
Neither of those questions were answered. But the word that he used made me start doing some research. And I'm custodial. So, you know, I've heard that before. But I went and looked it up, and it says, the first thing I found was not having custody of one's children after a divorce or separation, a non-custodial parent, uh, or relating to a lack of child custody, non-custodial households. And this was first used in 1973, so it's not an old word. And then I started looking up further, and I found out that there is an involvement with the word non-custodial regarding the prison industry. And it says a custodial sentence is a judicial sentence imposed, imposing a punishment and hence the resulting punishment itself consisting of mandatory custody of the convict, either in prison, incarceration, or in some other closed therapeutic and or re-educational institution, such as a reformatory, maximum security, psychiatry, or drug detoxification, especially cold turkey, for some crimes, such as the case of child sexual abuse, a custodial sentence is almost inevitable. So they're saying, you know, we're taking you into possession, i.e., you know, you can become property. But then later on, they describe a list of things that they consider custodial. And I'll read that part to you. It says, instead of depriving those who commit less dangerous offenses, such as summary offenses of their freedom, the court puts some limitations on them and gives them some duties. The list of components that make a community sentence is, of course, different in individual countries and will be combined individually by the court. Non-custodial sentences can include Unpaid work, right off the bat, the first thing, right. unpaid work. This can be called community payback or community service. Second, house arrest, curfew, suspended sentence. That means breaking law during a sentence may lead to imprisonment. Wearing an electronic tag, mandatory treatments and programs, drug or alcohol treatment, psychological help, back-to-work programs, fine apology to the victim, uh, specific court orders and injunctions not to drink alcohol, not to go to certain pubs, meet certain people, etc. Regularly reporting to someone, offender manager probation, judicial corporate punishment. So see, the way they're looking at it is it's okay to enslave people and put them in there and make them work. That's This is the Human Rights Network? Excuse me? This the Human Rights Network? Yes, this is the, uh, it's the I official. I have to talk to him because I've been knowing him on, through Facebook a number of years. He's actually been a guest on, um, on, um, Black Talk Radio Network platform on a different program. I've in, interviewed him. And I also know some other people that work with them, like a Field One Gaza, okay, um, who does uh, right. work, you know, I've publicizing political prisoners and just went to the uh, recent, you know, conference that they had against the Convention Against Torture Conference uh, in Geneva, Switzerland. So I would have to talk, talk to, to him. I, you know, I'm not, you know, uh, saying, you know, he didn't say what he said to you. But what I'm saying is it's surprising to me that they would give that answer. I've actually interviewed the director of that whole network. It's a female. I forget her name. The American Institute of Human Rights. The American? I would, yes. I would have to. Uh, maybe it's not the same one. Maybe yeah, it's this, not That's what he one. was speaking on behalf. Okay. Okay. But, well, I, I disagree with that. Yeah, I think so too. I, I disagree with that on many different levels. I don't want to see people with tags on them because that's just doing what the geo group wants you to do. Pretty soon, you know, half of the American population will have freaking bracelets on them so you know where you're going and you're under some kind yeah. of surveillance or something. It's crazy, man. Right. But yeah, I was like taking back. Tags that, from back in the day. 
I was taken aback by that answer. And again, I was also, I also noted that the questions I tried to get answered were completely avoided. As a matter of fact, a new question was provided. Let let me say this. Let me say this. Um, there, there was, uh, Miss Randall. She is a retired professor. I don't recall her first name because that was the first time I heard her speak. She was on the context of white supremacy, which you can listen to on the Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, she was on, uh, what's that? Last Friday, I believe, not long ago, within the past four days. And so I heard somebody mention something about the 13th Amendment. So I called in and, and she certainly confirmed that what we felt like and what others have stated. We've talked to law professors before and said that the 13th Amendment actually legalizes slavery and that the United States is practicing slavery. This is a, re, a well-known, respected a uh, retired law uh, uh, law professor from um, Dayton, Ohio. I think she lives in that area. And, and so, but then I started asking her, I called in and I said, well, me and some of my abolitionist comrades have been saying, well, how do we get the 13th Amendment changed? Which she had already stated is that you're going to have to just, you're going to need another constitutional amendment to remove it. And And so I, you know, I said, well, let me look at the human rights, what the, um, and y'all excuse me if I don't have the exact names. I'm kind of distracted. I'm under a little stress right now. But anyway, I looked up the human rights treaty on the United Nations, uh, website. It talks about human rights and it has different articles in it. And article four was saying that slavery in all its forms is abolished. And you know, they, and I, I don't recall it exactly. But it is language that I would like to see in the United States Constitution and all the state constitutions. So I then told her, I said, well, me and my comrades been saying, how can we get that amended? I don't suspect that this Republican Congress will be open to that. You know, the guy that I had talked to, um, uh, McHenry, Congressman McHenry over my district, I didn't talk to him. I talked to one of his aides. And they was arguing with me that slavery don't exist, even though I read the Thirteenth Amendment to them. And 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 so anyway, I told her I said that would be very difficult to get a Republican Congress, and I maybe not even just a Republican Congress, but I don't care what their party is, cause the system is built on slavery. They're all profiting off of it. And so I said, well, what about direct democracy in the states that we're able to put a ballot initiative? Could we do that to outlaw slavery in that state, that city, that municipality, that county, you know? And then, but she was saying, well, you probably would need to amend the state constitutions as well. And so, and you can't do that by valid initiative. It has to go through the house. I was like, oh my God, they just going to make it, you know, it's more difficult than what, you know, well, we've never thought it to be something easy, even doing ballot initiatives like, you know, legalizing cannabis. And so then, so then I was like, okay, so that means that we have to mount an education program, you know, a education campaign similar to what cannabis legalization at, uh, advocates do. You know, they fund billboards, ads, things of that nature. And maybe we could shame these people into, you know, 
uh, acknowledging that slavery exists and do something about it. And then, of course, I was reminded that these people, the majority of the people in the United States, seem to have no shame. So that would be a, a, a bad way to go about it. So then I was like, okay, maybe if we can show them the economic side of it, how their tax dollars are going into the pockets of corporations, where they're, and, and then, you know, uh, then the corporations are making money off of people by putting them into jobs that, you know, if, if you, like AT&T, a black man, they got, AT&T got more black men in prison working for it than it does on the outside. And so, but we will stay away from the ratio uh demographics because if we want to be smart about it uh you know a lot of white people might not care if, if we focus on the black people so we'll just call it people and show how it impacts the economy and takes jobs off the, out the economy and she agreed that that would be a good approach and so but then i started thinking about something else i asked her a question about well what do you think about this uh head of the largest police union coming out saying that they want hate crimes protection. If you kill a cop uh simply because they're wearing that uniform or whatever, they would need help, hate crime protections. And I thought, I said, well, that's pretty redundant when states have laws specifically uh, for killing cops or injuring cops. And then if you get, even if they don't, you're going to get the maximum of whatever you've been charged with. If you were found guilty, which 99% of the time is, is going to happen. So I will, that gave me an ideal. And I said, okay, well, how can we stop the slave catchers from catching more slaves? Well, what's the way that they primarily catch slaves or, or, you know, start that process through racial profiling. Okay, and I think one of you guys had posted something on New Abolitionist Radio Facebook page that shows a uh, hundred different or seventy different police departments, and it shows how their racial profiling is is just out of control. And I was like, okay, if they want hate crime protections, then we need to uh, have racial profiling classified as hate crimes. All right, as a hate crime. And so, you know, I, I'm just testing the waters to see if that's something feasible. She said it was a great idea. Okay, the way things work in Congress, you give and you take. And so we'll co-sign since, you know, it don't matter anyway. If we kill a cop, we know we're getting a death penalty. So, yeah, we'll let y'all codify that. But in return, we want hate. We want racial profiling classified as a hate crime. And so after speaking to her, after some people have, uh, when I said if I put together a petition, uh, asking for Congress to put, to classify racial profiling as hate crimes, how many of you would support it? Because I don't want to waste my time because my time is very valuable. I have very little of it, uh, uh, to be wasting. And so after speaking to her, I'm going to go ahead, uh, as soon as I have, uh, get some other projects out of the way, possibly this weekend, and I'm going to work on the language for uh, to put a petition together to tell Congress that we want racial profiling. I mean, do y'all think that that will help us in impacting slavery and at least sl- slowing it down some? Uh, yeah, I think it would. Wow. I, death by a thousand cuts. I'm looking on the websites right now to see if there was anything like that already in existence, any movements like that. And there's an organization called Racial Hate Crimes at Riot.org that may give you some insight as well, defining hate crimes. Um, it would, if it was to become legal and spread across the nation or wherever it was applied to at, it would certainly slow down the number of people being arrested 
based on race, racial profiling, like in New York, for instance. Mm -hmm. But it would also eventually lead to the prisons as well, because it would really point to the prisons and say, look, there's 60 to 70 percent minorities right here. And isn't that racial profiling? Isn't this the result of hate crimes? And another thing I learned from her and Johanna, I'd like to get your commentary. And um, if Mr. Malin, how you pronounce his name? Malin Crowe. If Mr. Mallinckrodt, if if you uh try to call in and I missed it, uh please call back. Uh, but Johanna and I do have his number, and we'll try to call okay. him um here shortly. Um, but but um, uh, on on this hate on, on again, looking at it in terms, this is what I learned from from uh Dr. Randall. She said that the uh surge, the conference to eliminate racism and discrimination or the convention to eliminate racism in the, the United States has signed Surge. this treaty. They have ratified this treaty, but they have refused to implement it. Okay. Because if they implement it, racial profiling, all the racism we see in terms of the prison population, those would are considered hate crimes under international law. Those are crimes against humanity. Okay. And, and so I, I didn't know that. I might have known, but didn't think about the significance of it that the United States had ratified the, the convention, uh, to eliminate racism and discrimination. But again, these things are already crimes in international law and, and people should recognize that. And so we got to force Congress perhaps to implement that as well. I, I mean, it's not going to happen overnight, but I think we need to build a movement towards that end. You know, for me, man, this is often like Bible study when we're in here learning and trying to figure out how to come combat this thing. And I got to say, one day I hope somebody will give us some honorary, honorary doctorates because we are definitely learning quite a bit and doing things that we have never done before and trying to do them in a professional manner. <clears throat> like I was saying the overall, I was saying the overall that uh, where we stand right now in the country. I know we're trying to find ways to where we can go. So, you know, a good predictor of, of future behavior is, you know, past behavior. And in America, I just think one of my first thoughts about when we talk about hate crimes is going to go naturally to the uh, Hate Crimes Act. And we saw what happened to James Byrd, and that was uh, that was proposed – in response to how he was dragged to death and, you know, the lack of remorse and, and this being a continuation of lynchings and, and, you know, murderous treatment and terrorism of, of black people or whatever. So that was supposed to have brought to a head and it still did not pass to become uh, an actual act of legislation until Matthew Shepard was killed. And the law stands now named as the Matthew Shepard Act. So it's Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Hate Crimes Prevention Act. So I'm just oh. trying to lightly present how the perception is going to be if there's going to be any type of, of you know, if this if this thing is going to be able to move through government bodies and become some change in legislation that's significant on a federal level, um, that's, that's significant as a tool to rein in what we call racial profiling, um, 
police brutality. I mean, which all, like we've discussed before, everybody that's in prison got there because of a police officer one way or another law enforcement put everybody that's in prison in prison. So with that said, I'm reminded of the, uh, Princeton professor uh, Naomi Mirakawa that we were talking about a few weeks ago when her interview on the Real News Network where she was saying to uh, to quote her she says uh, to talk about racial profiling is to imagine that there is such a thing as colorblind policing and we've never had anything like that in America so I think like I said I'm all for of course I'm on this program and we talk about week to week I'm all about you know let's move forward find some kind of way to but I just find we're losing you. I want to sober minded and be realistic. Can you hear me still? Uh, you were going in and out still? for a moment. Yeah, you sound good now. Okay. Yeah. I just want to be sober minded about where we stand in this country and the way things have been and how we're trying to move forward. We need to recognize, like what she said, all we've ever known is racial profiling. So I don't even know if that, I don't even know if, if that term can stand up to, to, um, legal, uh, uh, like to be really uh, scrutinized. Yeah, I don't know if it could be scrutinized as a specific thing because really colorblind policing has never existed. Yeah. So, I mean, I know this is a whole other conversation. Yeah, let's do a whole, let's, let's you know, plan a to do a hole, show about that. I don't that. know if we have enough specifics to really to really uh, lay this thing out. Yeah, let's let's plan on doing a show in the future about that, and perhaps we can yeah. get um, uh, Professor Randall on. Uh, but I do believe we have, have our guests. I think they called in on the conference line. Area code 305. Who do we Hello? have on the line? That's George. Yes, Good hi, evening, George sir. Malincrod. Greetings and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio, Brother George. Thanks. Thanks. Good I, to hear I from tried you. to call that other number, but couldn't get through. Uh, well, we might got be, you now. Uh, <laughs> it might be our okay. minders. <laughs> You know we have my Can you hear us, George? Yeah, I, I can't hear you really well, but uh, I'm here. Okay, H- how about how about this, Mister Mellon uh, Crot? Let me try to call you. Let me try to call you and bring you in, um, Johannan. If you have other windows open, um, that dragon. When you hear that dragon, and we're using Skype, that usually is you know the Skype using a lot of resources and other stuff is open, so it's going to cause that that kind of uh you know problem. But let me uh call uh okay. Mr. Mellencamp. I mean, Should I call the the seven zero four nine five one number? Yes, yes. If you could do that, yes. Okay, let me try to call that one again. Okay, right, I'll read uh, his bio okay. while we're doing that. You know, um, <clears throat> we c- came in contact with uh, George Mellencrot through Johanan, who uh, when we were doing stories on the Darren Rainey murder, murder, and uh, Mr. Mellencrot wrote the book. I can hear you. <laughs> there you go, getting away with murder. And from his bio, it says, uh, psychotherapist. I've been working in practice 20 years in the Miami area. Aside from my experience in the state prison psychiatric ward, I work for the Bertha Abbess Children's Center Counseling Emotionally Handicapped and Severely Emotionally Disturbed Middle School Children for the Dade Public uh, County Public School System. I continue to provide cancer support counseling that grew from my years facilitating support groups for the cancer support community. I've had many years in private practice as well. And uh, it also says that you're a painter and a world-class tennis uh, player. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I, I paint abstract uh, art, 
And at, at one point, a long, long time ago, I had world rankings, very, very modest world rankings in singles and doubles. That is awesome. That is really awesome, man. Um, well, you know, the George, uh, the, the Rainey story kind of broke us all up when it first surfaced because we were hearing about five or six, uh, stories like that, but he really stood out. A uh, gentleman who was boiled to death in the shower by prison guards. And, uh, it's, it's a terrible story. You might want to maybe reiterate, uh, how you were involved in that and maybe what the book is basically expressing. Yes. Um, well, I worked in the psychiatric unit where Rainey would be housed, and uh, I was already about 10 months fired for not staying silent about an inmate who was beaten. And um, I got this frantic call from my coworker Carmen, and the first three words she blurted out were, they killed him. And the, mm. those happened to be the first three words of my book as well. Uh, and she went on to describe how Darren Rainey was locked into a scalding hot shower the size of a phone booth, basically, and he had no control over the water temperature, and, and the guards uh, left him there basically to die, and, he, and he, he was begging to be let out, and at one point, one of the inmates nearby reported the guard said, is your shower hot enough? You know, I mean, taunting a, a poor guy who was, was, was being scalded. Wow. You know, if, if this was a prisoner of war camp, that would be a war crime. Well, in our perspective, it is, and that was, that, cause we look mm -hmm. at this as slavery, as you know, and we consider a lot of the people in there who are, are more, just victims, really, because maybe at best 20% of the prison population are actual real criminals who deserve to be in prison, whereas the great majority of them are in there for nonviolent drug-related crimes or some kind of debt-related crime or something that is uh, biased to begin with and aimed towards any particular, a particular group. So we do look at it as exactly what you yeah, just stated. Yeah. And, and so then what I did after I heard um, that horrendous, account of it from from my coworker Carmen is that I, I tried to talk to the FBI. In fact, I, I was interviewed by two agents, and they passed on an investigation. You know, I said, hey, wait a second, this, this guy was scalded to death. Doesn't that warrant an investigation? No. And I called the medical examiner I, and to find out, you know, how, how, did, how did he die? What was the result of the report? It's still pending. This is two and a half years later. They have not brought charges, and the medical examiner's report is still pending. Um, it, it, it's just incredible to think about. And, and a group that I'm with called SPAN, Stop Prison Abuse Now, went to meet with Catherine uh, Fernandez-Rundle, who's the state attorney here in Dade County, Florida, and she had four of her top assistant state attorneys, and this is October 1st. And so uh, she promised, she said, hey, you know, I think we're going to get some results in, no oh, three or four weeks. Meanwhile, this is three months later, nothing's happened. So bringing any kind of, uh, you know, grand jury or charges uh, against these officers seems, you know, like a long shot at this point. Nobody seems to want to step up and, and do the right thing. Well, George, that uh, has a lot to do with how I reached out to you when you put out the information saying that you were going to be speaking um, 
in in Tallahassee at the uh, the uh, criminal yeah. justice subcommittee. Um, can you give us can you give us the specifics on what that committee meets about? Why you were called to speak in front of them, and then we can relate that to like this case, and then the the FDOC's uh, inmate mortality database. Maybe a little bit of a I took it as a casual um, attitude towards these deaths and, and the urgency that you're expressing, and then we're obviously expressing. Maybe you can uh, tie that in for the audience. Right. Well, I, I think for me, going before the legislators was what I was about, you know, the whole time. That was the point, to to talk to people who had the power to change things. And so uh, Senator Greg Evers is the chairman of the committee, and I met with him and two of his aides before my presentation for over an hour, and I filled him in on the details that, you know, I didn't present in the presentation because it's much shorter. And the one takeaway I'll tell you about uh, Senator Evers, he's determined to find solutions. That's my sense of, of him, and um, he he's heard a lot, and he was very interested in what I had to say, and he said he, he looked forward to hearing uh, my solutions and invited me to be a part of the process in the future. And so, you know, I had to agree with him because, you know, we can complain and, and recount all these horror stories, and it seems like every week there's a new one. The, the Herald's just come out with a couple new stories. Um, and, and that's good. We really need to inform people because I think people on a national level generally don't know what's happening in our prison systems nationwide. And to tell you the truth, compared to the police brutality that get, gets a, a lot of press, and, you know, ap apologies to uh, Michael Brown's family, um, you know, Eric Garner's family, and Dontre Hamilton, the mentally ill man who was killed in Milwaukee, but what's happening in our prison system dwarfs the, pre the police brutality that's being reported it's just that people don't know about it. I mean, if they knew right. that, that, that people were getting boiled to death or gassed to death, uh, you know, in, in addition to being just beaten to death, uh, you know, people would stand up and say, hey, wait a second, I didn't know this was going on. we got to do something. You know, so, so this, is, this is what I'm trying to do as an individual is to uh, get the word out go and talk to legislators, whether it's here in Dade County, which I've done, or at the state level. And quite frankly, I I like to take it nationally, um, which is what's so good about um, the new abolitionist radio show, you know, getting more of a national audience, informing people of the issues, looking at the problems, looking at the solutions. Yes, and you know, you, you said something that kind of just uh, blew my mind about with all the abuse that we're seeing, the deaths happening across the nation of unarmed people, what's happening in the prison system surpasses that. And it's it does. something people are not even aware. So however bad you think the police may have gotten, all you got to do is look at what's happening in the prison systems and they'll seem tame in comparison. And it's happening a lot of times in secret. And, you know, I made the statement, I think I made the statement on your show the last time I was on. I said the Florida Department of Corrections is riddled with 
amoral, sadistic sociopaths than the people who support, enable, and cover up their crimes. So they're operating in secret. You know, there, there's nobody with a cell phone taking, you know, an image of, of you know, like, for example, Eric, Eric Garner getting choked, you know, or, or uh, witnesses. No one's seeing this except for other inmates and, of course, the guards themselves that do these atrocities. So this is where uh, it's so difficult to get this information because these these inmates fear retaliation and the good guards feel retaliation as well. So this this small minority uh, of thugs, essentially, and the people that support them have a lot of power because they'll retaliate against their own. And so, you know, this is all happening behind the scenes, and that that's why I'm working so hard to get these stories out there. Oh, sure. Um, this is Scotty uh, George, and I really hey, appreciate you. Uh, bringing this to the forefront and I just wanted to link this what you just said about these prisoners are afraid and why it's hard to get information about what's going on in prisons and right now the nation is talking about freedom of speech it's a big topic but what's missing from the coverage that I've seen is that Pennsylvania um, in the latter part of 2014 just passed a law uh, to silence prisoners to keep them from um, speaking to prison radio, which goes inside the prison, uh, mostly focusing on political prisoners and allowing right. them to speak on current events and then issue that through the Internet. And we play those commentaries from time to time on uh, right. our radio station. And but it not only applies to those who are current prisoners, but also those who are out of prison, who have served their time and gotten out of prison. And it applies specifically to someone who has been convicted. And and I just want to stress, you know, conviction doesn't necessarily mean the person was guilty of the crime. Um, But um, if they were convicted of a personal injury uh, crime, then this law will apply to them. What, if you live in the state of Pennsylvania, those listeners in, in the state of Pennsylvania, you need to be, you know, really raising your voices in objection to the silencing act that Pennsylvania uh, just passed in the latter part of 2014. Your thoughts on that, uh, George? Do you have any? Well, I all I can say is I hope the ACLU gets on board because that sounds like something that they would immediately file a lawsuit to stop because you can't stop freedom of speech. I, you know, we, we're guaranteed that in, in most situations. And any kind of justification the DOC has for that law is basically because they want to keep their dirty uh, work in, in secret. You know, they, they, you know these, these things they're doing, uh, they, they just want to keep it under wraps is, is my sense right. of it. Well, and for citizens of Pennsylvania, you know, rise up because it's a slippery slope. As soon as they pass one law uh, regarding free speech, they'll just pass more and more until, you know, every everybody's basically uh, figuratively in handcuffs over this thing. I don't, I don't know if they know about the free speech law. I'm pretty sure the ACLU does, but I do know they were familiar with what was going down in Florida at the time it was going down when 32 of the prison guards got fired amidst those charges. And uh, from Howard Simon, the executive director of the ACLU out of Florida, he said, these revelations that are coming out 
are not about incompetence. They're about guards killing people and public officials working feverishly to cover it up. Yep. Now, that's ACLU saying that these people are committing mass murder. And to look at the image of the one man, uh, Randall Jordan Aparo, who was yes. gassed to death, that photo of the gas image on the wall where his body used to be in the shape of his body is one of the most horrible things someone can put into their mind. But this is happening to sometimes innocent people in not only in Florida, but across the country. And I'm very afraid of what may be going on in Mississippi because we found out yeah. Mississippi, their entire prison industry is corrupt from the head down. Right, right. Well, the in the case of Randall Jordan Aparo, I did speak to the Criminal Justice Committee about his situation, and I want to tie in Corizon and Wexford into this equation. Yes. Because I believe that when you withhold treatment, medical treatment, from an inmate, that is inmate abuse. And the way it played into the Randall Jordan Aparo case was he had hereditary hemorrhagic telangia ectasia. Okay, so it's a hereditary disease. It was in his charts. They're supposed to know about it. And he had a flare-up. So he goes to the nurses and he says, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really feeling horrible. He had 102 temperature. And this is a bleeding uh, disease. And he was bleeding. He was, you know, having, you know, some serious problems. And they denied him treatment. So he got upset to the point where the nurses called the guards, the guards hauled him off to a solitary cell, and then basically gassed him with nine bursts of pepper spray, you know, which was totally contraindicated for his his hereditary condition. And five hours later, he was found dead. I mean, he, you know, this is a young, this is like a 27-year-old guy who is getting out in a couple months and, and looking forward to maybe turning his life around he's he's never going to get that chance and then here here's where it really gets amazing uh after this you know a typical doc cover-up like he died from natural causes or something four corrections department inspectors accidentally stumbled upon the case they concluded that that jordan aparo died as a result of medical negligence and the sadistic retaliatory use of chemical agents on a sick and help us inmate who did nothing wrong. And, you know, there are good people in the DOC like these four inspectors, and they feared retaliation, and they're, they're the same four who filed a whistleblower lawsuit. Oh, my God. And where are they now? You know, it's just incredible. I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I don't know. You know, every week it seems... Uh, we're hearing another story coming out of Florida. And, um, you know, when I think about solutions to the problem, you know, I think one of the obvious things, of course, is getting their cameras replaced with high-definition equipment, body cameras as well on all the guards. But we need different people monitoring the cameras because what what good is it going to have, you know, if we have the best camera system in the world and the same DOC personnel are monitoring those cameras? 
I'd love to see you know? us get those people out of the prisons so they're not even exposed to the possibility of being tortured to death because they were never supposed to be there to begin with. Well, that's, I, yeah, that's a good point. The, the mentally ill often find themselves in, in, in prison due to their mental illness. For example, the, the case of Dontre Hamilton, the, the mentally ill man who was shot 14 times by Officer Manning in Milwaukee, Yes. Let's, let's say, for example, he, he happens to survive that. So what's the next step? He's going to be charged with assault on a Leo, Leo uh, law enforcement officer. So he's, he's going to end up being sent to prison. To, to what? Get further traumatized and abused by, by guards? It doesn't make sense. But I'll tell you right now, there is some good news. Down here in Dade County, Judge Steve Leifman has what's called a, a jail diversion program. And in this program, all law enforcement officers in Dade County have been given crisis intervention training. And what that enables them to do is to recognize uh, a potential call as somebody who's mentally ill. And instead of yelling at them and pointing guns at them and, you know, going crazy, they talk the guy down, they get him into some sort of treatment. Uh, there's some local facilities that they handle these cases. And they, they instead of using violence, they use words. And so the end result is our average consensus per year has gone down about 40% in our, in our county jails. And what that's allowed us to do is to close one entire facility. And that's saving taxpayers $12 million a year. So if we if we treat the mentally ill humanely, um, everybody wins. So George, you know, something gotta, that I oh. yeah, go ahead. Uh, a question I had that came from the uh, the video I was able to watch of of your uh, testimony of, in, in Tallahassee. There was a woman that stood up and spoke, and I believe she said that she was related to. Um, to the uh, Araparo case, or, or one of the one of the fairly highly publicized ones that we've discussed uh, on right. here, uh, one of the murders, she brought up a Florida statute specifically that speaks to abuse, neglect, um, and exploitation of elderly persons and disabled adults. And she stood right. there in front of the panel and told them it's a uh, title. 46, I think, in the Florida statutes, and she gave the specific uh, chapter and verse of it, and, and it goes into depth discussing what you've revealed, I mean, in the book and in, in your experiences, um, what we know has been the case in several of these, you know, hundreds of, of suspicious deaths. Right. What, if any, feeling did you get from, you know, your time in front of the, the people that make decisions and make changes what was their response to? Because I heard I heard uh, one of the gentlemen speaking, and and she was saying this is felonious. So, like we've discussed with uh, Eric Garner, um, like we've discussed with uh, Akai Gurley, with Tamir Rice, John Crawford, across the country, we've discussed the criminality uh, of law enforcement officers not being uh, prosecuted. So. When you look at this situation, like you said, these things are happening on a greater scale than the extrajudicial murders that are happening in the streets. Behind bars, these things are happening, and it's just as criminal. This this Florida statute lays this out as a felony. What 
I mean, where can we go from here if it's already on the law books? Well, I I don't know that specific statute, uh, but if it pertains to the elderly, uh, that's a believe it or not a Department of Children and Families um, situation. And and he, I did a little research when I was writing my book, and I called the DCF and I said. You know, because I, I looked at it, and it, it appeared that one of their statutes dealt with people who were uh, sort of how, uh, powerless or helpless. And, I, and so I spoke to the lady, and I said, uh, you know, we've got inmates here who uh, have no power. They can be uh, told to cuff up, and they have to cuff up. They're totally at the mercy of guards. Uh, don't wouldn't this uh, particular statute cover that? And she said, uh, the DOC is out of our jurisdiction. So if if what this woman who spoke before the committee was talking about was from the, the Department of Children and Families about the elderly, then, you know, it's, it's a bit of a problem. And and the thing is, you know, we, we have you know, enough laws on the books to where, you know, if a guard beats an inmate to death, he should be charged with a crime. And, and and so I don't I don't quite know what to make of it. I, I one of the statements I made in the um in the committee meeting was I pointed out um the inmate uh, former inmate, Latondra Ellington, who feared for her life she was put into solitary, and the next day they found her dead. And so uh, the local county medical examiner found no visible signs of trauma, while the Ellington family hired their own medical examiner who found that there was uh, abdominal trauma consistent with either being punched or kicked. And the point I made there in the committee was that compared to civilian homicides, inmate homicides don't get the first-rate investigations. And, yes. and so the problem is is not only within the DOC, in other words, it's with all the other agencies or coroners that, in, that do the work that should lead to a conviction. They're, they're dropping the ball left and right, all of them. Right. That was something else that was covered in the conference where, uh, I believe it was the sheriff's department. Um, I forget which, which, you know, form of law enforcement it was, which representative, but he was speaking about how they have that relationship now with the DOC to go back right. and, and do this investigation. And they, he said he was going to have to report back to him, didn't he? He didn't know what the, the specific relationship you know, needed to be, he didn't know what their liability was for any of their findings. I mean, it, it felt to me like he was admitting that they were using taxpayer dollars and justifying, you know, the overtime and the, and the extra investigation into these things, but he didn't right. know himself what their liability was. Yeah. They had sort of a memo of cooperation and that was the commissioner right. for the uh, Florida department of law enforcement uh, the, the one problem, I see a couple problems there. Uh, first of all, the FDLE has screwed up investigations in the past, and all I can hope for is that they're, they're on the ball this time. But then what about a case 
where an inmate is denied medical treatment, uh, Pat Beal of the Palm Beach Post has done some remarkable investigative stories into Corizon and Wexford who have 1,700 malpractice lawsuits between them. Yes. So let, let's say an inmate mm. comes, like in, in this one inmate she reported, uh, came and had cancerous lumps. Well, they said, oh, go rest up and put these hot cr compresses on your cancer lumps. You know, and other cancer patients have been treated with Tylenol. You know, and so what, I mean, if if you're not treating an inmate, and then they die, what's that? That's just, oh, I'm sorry, we, we just made the wrong medical decision? I mean, there should be some law, um, uh, you know, I mean, to me, that that's, that's homicide if you don't treat an inmate who needs treatment. Yes. I believe you are right, 100%. It is homicide. Uh, an inaction can just be as deadly as an action, depending yeah. on your position at the moment. Simply not dialing 911 really could be considered murder, for instance. You know, if you're standing there with a phone in your hand and you don't do it. So these are the equivalents that we're seeing happening with these prison guards and doctors. And we've even here shared stories where women were receiving C-sections in the uh, prison and the doctor treated them with sugar <laughs> to heal their wounds and close it up. Amazing. I heard about that. That's, yes. That's nuts. It is outrageous. And, I, you know, I also find that there seems to be a correlation between the price tag that the state receives per prisoner and the level of abuse. For instance, uh, Florida is the lowest paid in the nation <laughs> when it comes oh, to gosh. how much they get per prisoner. And uh, they're only uh, beaten by Louisiana. Right after them is Alabama and then South Dakota and Indiana and on and on. So I think that there's a correlation with that. They're, you know, the little bit of money that they're receiving is going directly into people's pockets rather than taking care of what they're there to take care of. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it goes really high. In New York State, uh, just incarcerated youth for one year is $352,000. So what do you, what did you gather from your time with them? I mean, I don't know if everything you were able to speak to them about was caught on the, the recording, uh, you know, with the Florida links that they provide or if you had conversations before or after. I mean, what are, what are you taking from speaking in Tallahassee to, you know, the powerful people that make these decisions and, and are, you know, making plans for the future of the state? What, what is your estimation of where things are headed? Well, I think they're, they're definitely looking for solutions, but I see this as being a, a very long road, uh, to mm -hmm. getting meaningful legislative change. And, and unfortunately, um, you know, more people are going to die, uh, which is, you know, I, I find really, really unnerving, but, uh, these state, these things take time and, there's got to be, uh, you know, a majority of senators willing to pass new laws to to keep these these horrific things from happening again. And I, I mean, all I can do is as an individual, and you know, and I encourage, mm -hmm. you know, other like-minded individuals to do the same, is to keep reaching out to legislators uh, 
think about solutions to the problems, especially people who have been on the inside. I'm in the process of developing a white paper. I'd like to present uh, problems and solutions in an organized, logical way so that uh, I can send this to legislators and they'll get a sense of what needs to happen in the, in the prisons uh, themselves and also with regard to uh, Corizon and Wexford. Um, what, one of the, the other points I wanted to make about Corizon is in my employee manual, there was only, there were only two mentions of abuse. One was, hey, don't use abusive language. And the other one was abuse inmates in any manner. And we weren't abusing the inmates. The, the guards were. But there was nothing else in the manual, not only about recognizing re- uh, abuse, but what to do, uh, when you wanted to report it. So, um, what happened there, and, I, and this is one of my, my, my big regrets, is for a couple of years, I had seen inmate abuse, and I was passing it off as, oh, prison is a horrible mm-hmm. place to be, and bad things happen. Right. You know? And, and I mean, I saw really um, punitive cell searches where the 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 inmate's phone was thrown into the toilet, his his family photos were ripped, and it was like, oh, prison is a bad place. I mean, that's what I rationalized. I didn't realize that was abuse, you know. And and in, unless employee manuals are corrected to address that situation, then Corizon and Wexford. Are, are complicit by omission, as, as you were making the point before. If, you, if you're not saying anything, you're, you're about as guilty as if you, you know. So complicit. they've got to step up and, and, and make a difference as well. If, if, I, if I may interject, um, I see that a lot. We hear that a lot, and I think it's a big problem in this society that people use the excuse of, well, he shouldn't have done what he done and ended up in prison. Even when we're talking about rape, because of prison rape, uh, males are more impacted or rape more than females in this country. If we include right. prison rape and a lot of the times when we post those type of stories and not, not the people who follow our pages, obviously, um, cause they, they have followed our page cause they have an interest in, you know, justice. But in the wider, uh, conversation in the society, you know, most people just brush it off. Well, he shouldn't have did what he did to be in there, you know, and, and they just justify it. Like, okay, like if, okay, I got arrested. I had, you know, two ounces of weed and, uh, and the law says I can only have one ounce. So I end up in prison. They also said I was manufacturing and distributing, uh, distributing weed. So I'm in prison. Well, as part of my punishment, when I get sentenced, they don't say, you know, that I, I should be subjected to rape. I should be subjected right. to beatings. I should be subjected to, uh, murdered, you know, imprisoned by guards. And it just, right. it's just disgusting to me that this is, seems like to be the national mindset with far too many people, George. Yeah. And, and the thing is, um, how about all the innocent people who are in prison who've been wrongly convicted? I mean, yeah. I've read 40,000. And people that I've talked to said, no, no, it's way more than that. Yes. And so I'm thinking, 
you know, these are innocent people. And my my question to somebody who's saying, well, they're, they're criminals, they deserve what they get, my my question to them would be, do you, do you have children, and what if one of them was coming from an office party, just, you know, had a little too much over the legal limit, and ran over a family with, with babies and killed them all? Should, should your son or daughter be raped, beaten, tortured, murdered? And, and usually they'll go, uh, uh, seriously. I, you know, they don't cognitive think it through. But, you when know, cognitive dissonance kicks in. They've got the idea that these people are all bad and they deserve whatever kind of treatment from hell that comes their way. And then they've got the other side where you just made them connect with someone that they love and care about. So really we're dealing with the, with the larger issue of empathy. These people don't see themselves or see anyone that they care about when they look into a system that has over 2 million of our friends, neighbors, loved ones, co-workers, former co-workers, church members, whoever. This is all of us that is affected by this. And so, I again, totally, on this program, I, go ahead. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you, and not to mention the mentally ill that we were talking about in the beginning. Don't even belong. Um, you know, there are, there are so many mentally ill people. We had so many in our caseload where we scratched our heads, like, how did this guy ever, you know, how was he ever found fit for trial? Right. So right. you get these mentally ill people in there who shouldn't be there in the first place, and then they're brutalized. I, you know, I made the point in the meeting. I said, in the Middle Ages, the mentally ill were thrown into dungeons where they were beaten, tortured, and killed. What's changed? Nothing. You know, and, and it's, you know, we're, we're supposed to be America, the country of ideas. You know, we're supposed to be the beacon for the rest of the world. We're failing. I mean, we, we you know, if we have prisons where people are, are, are tortured and maimed and, and beaten. And, you know, that reflects on us as Americans. And quite frankly, it's embarrassing. You know, it's even worse when you realize just how many people are innocent, period. Like, you know, when you were working within the prisons, you saw healthy people throughout the day, but you had no idea whether they were innocent or guilty. You just knew that they were there, which meant that they had, you know, be either been convicted or some other reason for being there. So you really couldn't judge what they said. I'm innocent. You had to take for granted that they weren't telling you the truth. Just the Andy Dugan story is an example of how many innocent people are in the prisons. Andy Dugan was a lab technician who falsified nearly 11,000 different positive drug reports in order to get a kickback in her paycheck from the private prison, which was offering an incentive for positive uh, drug, drug, uh, reports. Oh. And of those oh, 11,000, 6,000 people lost their freedom because of her. And she was just one person. And there are many lab technicians like her who are receiving the same kickbacks. Uh, I, it, yeah, I, there, there's corruption from, from top to bottom. And, uh, I, I was on a, um, a radio show just a while back and with, uh, Mark Clemens, maybe you know his name. Yes, yes. Um, he's out of Chicago, and some thug of a a police officer got uh, 
John Burge, I think his name, and he got a group of other officers who tortured confessions out of hundreds of um, falsely a- accused and, and uh, jailed people. And, and Mark Clemens spent, I think, 28 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Yes, you he know? was a guest of ours here on New Abolitionist Radio and uh, told us about his case and the many, many other yeah, he says young men at people, the time. He, he says that possibly yeah. over 100 people are still in prison uh, because of John Burge. Who just yeah, was allowed uh, to get his pension uh, maybe a month or so ago. They made a judgment that said that his, his retirement pension is, is still in in place. I think it's like $4,500 a month he'll get from the state, even after all of this has come out. It's, it's incredible. You, you just, you've got to wonder, uh, where the common sense is. I mean, people, bad people that do bad things should be made to pay. And that includes correctional officers and, and policemen. You know, and, and the thing is, the other point I've made here, you know, with, with, uh, the, the statement about the sociopaths, that small minority mm-hmm. is, Tarnishing the work of the the good correctional officers and administrators, and and the same thing goes with these police departments. There are a lot of good right. policemen out there who you know really try to do uh, the best job they can, and their their profession is getting dragged through the mud by these these outliers who you know do the the things that were you know, seeing in the news practically on a weekly basis. You tagged them with the name sociopaths. And I really think we should have some kind of testing for sociopaths whenever they're dealing with a uh, a public job, dealing with the public, dealing with medical, dealing with justice, anything like that. You should have some kind of test for sociopaths because that's mm-hmm. what they are and that's what we have now. And by that nature, sociopaths, tend to migrate towards the top of an industry because you know they it's for them it's eat everybody alive and we find ourselves in positions now we're literally the leaders of entire states prisons are sociopaths i I will co-sign on to that max particularly (laughs) let's look at police officers okay um and let's look at prison guards if nothing else at least those two professions you should be required to undergo, you know, some, some kind of psychological examination. You, you should be evaluated. George can give it to him. What do you think, <laughs> George, George? didn't you mention that in your testimony? I, I did. And, and I mentioned it with regard to psychiatric units. And what mm. I basically said was that any guard with a use of force could not work in a psychiatric unit. I mean, that's pretty obvious. And then the other thing I said is, we need to uh, give these officers personality uh, tests to, you know, determine if they've got any personality issues. Because what's what's happening is is these guards get into these situations and they're triggered by the mentally ill, among other things. So, you know, having having that for all correctional officers in general would be a great idea. At least prisoner, uh, at least policemen, sheriffs, and prison guards. Yes, but yeah. I think you'd have to even yeah. go further. Like you know, you don't want sociopaths in the medical industry. You don't want sociopaths taking care of your preschoolers. You don't want sociopaths taking care of your infirm elderly parents. You know, there's just 
places where you don't want a sociopath at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that may hit it right on the nail on the head. Maybe we can get some legislation like that since we can't get the other legislation going through, you know? Yeah. I mean, there, there are just so many things that are, are wrong and so many details to address. But we've got to start somewhere, and we need to start sooner rather than later to turn the tide here because, uh, you know, it just just seems that we're just, you know, avalanching with these stories. Well, George, I think that uh, you can have hope because just from our perspective, we're seeing a great growth quickly in people's awareness of what they're actually dealing with. And by changing that mindset, so you recognize it, what it is you're dealing with, it changes how you address it. So people are starting to address it very much differently than they have in the past. And so you can have hope that that is occurring. We're witnessing it firsthand. Yeah, I, I, I tell you, I'm, I, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, George, you know, I, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just oh, going to tell you, I appreciate that you're still working in all of this. I mean, from the time when we met you and we discussed for the first time, um, abolitionism with you and you were able to, you know, say outright that yes, I see myself as, as an abolitionist as well. So to see you getting in these kind of uh, spaces to speak to the decision makers like this, it gives me encouragement and hopefully to the movement itself that, you know, make the connections with people who are going to the right places, speaking in the right places, writing the books, helping to change the legislation, helping to get public policy in place where we can actually see change come to pass. So I give you a personal thanks and a new abolitionist thanks for continuing to keep up the good fight. Thank you. Thank you. You know, and, and my, you know, since I am a, a psychotherapist, my um, main focus is, is the humane treatment of the mentally ill. And, um, you know, one of the things that I said in the Justice Committee uh, was that there's a disconnect from the county jails to our state prisons. And let's say an inmate has enough luck to be medicated in a county jail, he's had a psych eval, that stops when he comes to a Florida prison. So he's off meds for a while. Mm. So I suggested that we have some some like a partnership with the county jail so that the DOC can track these people who, you know, somehow come in. You know, I mean, a lot of them shouldn't, but the ones that, you know, come in, they've got to figure out how to deal with them. Because in Florida, the DOC is the largest single provider of mental health services. And that, that's yes. a really scary thought considering how yes. poorly yes. they treat the mentally ill in the state prison. So, yes. you know, I, I saw a stat. I saw a stat some time ago that said that I believe there was 36,000 um, in state mental institutions and 365,000 in the prison system being treated for mental illness. Yeah, yeah. And then, then the last thing I said to the committee on that regard, I said, no solitary confinement for the mentally ill. It's contraindicated. Right. It's mm -hmm. tough enough for a normal inmate with not too many problems to deal with solitary. And, and yet I, I gotta, um, um, I'm in communication with a lot of mothers and parents of inmates. And one mother told me about her son who had a diagnosis since the age of 10 
they had put him into solitary for two straight years and he came out catatonic. That's, uh, that's just barbaric. I, there's no other word for it. Well, I don't know that we have hard answers, um, after, you know, this conversation and after the, the meeting you were at. I know, do you have any plans you want to, you know, share with us or have they just expressed interest in continuing to, to talk about any of this with you? Do you know where the legislature is, is headed or this, this subcommittee rather is headed for the future? Well, it's, it's hard to say at the moment. I, I do believe that they're earnest about finding solutions. I know that, that Senator Evers, uh, expressed that to me. And, um, it's, it's my hope that, uh, they'll continue to, to hear what I've got to say. As I said, I'm gonna, uh, uh, publish a white paper on the subject. And it, you know, and, and what I intend to publish is not the be all end all, recommendations that cover everything i i want to cover what i really know about having worked right. there and and having the accounts i've gotten from parents with with uh, children and you know and husbands and wives and and so um you know it's my hope that this dialogue will continue and that more and more people in the public domain will be on board you see if 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 senators statewide, not just the five I spoke to, but the rest of them are hearing from their constituency and saying, hey, you know, we're we're hearing about this horrific abuse. This is very unsettling. What what's gonna get done? The more uh motivation the senators have from listening to, to people uh around the state and and indeed around the nation, it's gonna lead to change. And it's a win-win for everybody because if we have fewer mentally ill in prison, fewer nonviolent uh, people in prison, the taxpayers are going to save a lot of money. And uh, it, it, there, there are just so many benefits that, that would accrue from something like that. You know, we can do this and we can, we can do it smartly in a way that, that you know, when we look back, we'll go like, wow, why did we do this a long time ago? Is my hope. <laughs> Every time we see this abolitionist movement move forward, I feel like that. <laughs> you know, why haven't we been fighting this fight? Cause it's, it's right. just so true. You know, and, uh, when you do publish your white paper, please, uh, if possible, let us, uh, get a chance to read it. Maybe even put it in our upcoming, uh, magazine, the North Star we're working on. Absolutely. I, I would be happy to do that. Fantastic. It's been a pleasure, again, to have you here, uh, Brother George, and uh, we hope to hear again from you soon and more successes. Keep up with that good fight. We're very, very much yeah. proud of what you're doing. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And I just want to do a quick plug for my book. Please. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually, this is my full-time job, and it doesn't pay very well. <laughs> Tell us about it. Welcome so, to the movement, brother. You know, yeah, right. So I'm, I'm not asking for a handout, but I'm asking for the public to go out there and get my book, get educated on these issues, see what it's like to be on the inside. And and the other thing, too, is this book is a good read. I've been getting five-star reviews on Amazon, mm -hmm. and this is a book 
that you're going to remember. I mean, this isn't like uh, what I call airport reading, where you you read you read a novel right. in about five hours, and two days later you can't even remember the author's name. You know, this book will stay with you. So that's I'm I'm promoting this as much as I can now, along with the issue, because I I think it's it's an important uh, companion to the issue because it it'll it'll give people the inside scoop on what's happening in our psych units. And and it's happening all over. It's not just this one unit I was in. I'm finding out it's happening in the psych units all over Florida and, and indeed the United States. Across the entire country. Well, yeah. listen, well, our listeners, make sure you visit the New Abolitionist Radio site on Facebook. We have a direct link to George's website where you can pick up his book, pick up his book, not only so you can become more educated on what's happening and understand what's going on, but also so you can help him continue with this movement. This is a fight for the lives of people's, uh, for their lives and their freedom, and it is very important, so support him. You can go to georgemalincrot.com, spelled G-E-O-R-G-E-M-A-L-L-I-N-C-K-R-O-D-T.com. You did that well. And, and just a, a final note, uh, my coworker in the book is named Carbon. That's a, a fictitious name because uh, she's still afraid of retaliation. But when you read my book, everything that Carmen is about, think tall Whoopi Goldberg, for real. Because she's got that kind of sense of humor. She had long dreads when I first met her. The funniest person that I know personally. And I, I hope that I've captured uh, just a fraction of her sense of humor in the book. And by the way, if anybody knows Whoopi, get the book to her. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Peace and safe travels on your journeys, George. We look forward to hearing Thank from you, you again. Thank, Thank you, you, George. Great Take care. Stay in touch. Okay. Uh, you know, we went through that whole segment break-free. Should we take a break, Brother Scotty? Oh, why not? <laughs> You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio with Max Parthas, Scotty Reed, and Johanna Nalaya. We'll be right back after these messages. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. We just uh, finished our interview with George Malincrot, author of Getting Away with Murder, the Darren Rainey story. Uh, Johanna, any words? Scotty? Um, well, I'm glad that he was there. We got to have somebody there, so I'm glad he was there. Um I mean, I watched the, the footage that they, the Florida state legislature put out on the web. We can watch what actually happened and the other people that spoke as well. And I'm not in Florida and I would like to establish relationships with people that are actually going to do things. So I'm not counting any of them out. I don't know them personally. We have not spoken about these matters, but what I took from the meetings and I wouldn't dare try to put George on the spot like that to make him agree with me or whatever. But what I took from the meetings was a lot of uh, incredulity. People were just, they just couldn't believe what they were hearing. They just, this doesn't, you know, that certainly seems bad. That doesn't seem like a very good thing. I mean, these are the responses people were giving yeah, to, I, I, you know, what they were hearing. Yeah, and I yeah. want to see people yeah. that are outraged. I want to see who is going to be, where are we, we going to put the blame? Because what's happening right now is these people are protecting one another. No one wants to be the one that all of this is pushed off on. There's been seven 
uh, secretaries of the Florida Department of Corrections in the last eight years. There's this is the third with Julie Jones under uh, Rick Scott's four years. So every time one of them leaves is another opportunity for someone to go down with all of this baggage on them as being, well, it's your fault, and now we're going to fix it. But so far, no one's being named as the bad guy. So that says to me that contracts with Wexford and Corizon are going to continue, even though you just heard the man say there's been 700 lawsuits combined between those two corporations. There's going to continue to be inmate abuses and murders and tortures going on when you heard the four whistleblowers are involved in a lawsuit, but we don't know where they are. We don't know who they are. I would imagine that they're in the same position as George, and they've had to find a new way to earn a living now. So, I mean, at what point are we going to get hardcore about, look, these are the people responsible, off with their heads, let everybody get that, that cathartic moment where we see the blood flow of the oppressors, and we can say we're embracing a new, better day and really start moving forward. As long as we keep playing like, Oh my goodness, this is so, this is so unfortunate. And, and acting like our hands are tied, people are dying every day. So. Yeah. Yeah. I want to reiterate something and then I have another uh, comment on my own. Um, Johanna mentioned how these people act like they just couldn't believe it. I don't believe that. I don't believe that unless, you know, they aren't informed as they should be, being that they are right. representatives or politicians you would think that they would be informed about these issues but obviously they don't care about them just like uh charlie chris when he was you know running against rick scott he never brought up these issues you know of all these inmate deaths and all of these lawsuits that's going to cost the florida taxpayer money you know uh since that's all some people care about is how much money it's going to cost them as opposed to caring about you know that people are actually being murdered and and so so but let's you know that's florida but why is it that people are so quick to believe the worst about a country like cuba which is 90 miles off the coast of of florida you ain't never been down there you haven't visited the prisons you know or anything like that to know what's going on but you certainly would believe that if i went before them and i said it you know President Obama shouldn't lift the uh, embargo because look at how they're treating their prisoners. They're murdering people. They're raping people. They're putting people in showers and scalding them to death. And so, you know, uh, we should even be slapping more sanctions on them. They will be quick to believe that given that that's Florida. And we know how some of those, although the attitudes are changing towards Cuba with the newer, I mean, with the younger generation, but the older generation, the ones that are in power, uh, like that Senator Rubio, you know, uh, yeah, they would be quick to believe that. But how often have you heard Senator Rubio talk about these issues, you know, that's going on in the state, uh, that he hails from? All right. And, and then the other thing I want to point out, you just heard, uh, George talk about how now he has to make a living off his book. Look, he could have looked the other way. He could have just kept his yep. mouth shut and just say, well, they shouldn't have got put in here. They, what did they do? You know what, what, hey, that's not my problem. All right. Um, and continue to make a living to support himself and his family. If he has one, I'm not sure if he does, but so now he's finding himself out here advocating for the human rights of people on the prison slant, uh, uh, plantation. 
and speaking in front of the so-called people in positions of power and telling them what's going on. All right. Now that shows me right then and there that there are a whole lot of people that are working in these prisons who don't care. I don't want to hear an excuse. Well, I need a job. That's what you need a job doing, enslaving your own people. I mean, I don't care what color you are, but particularly if you are one, if you belong to a group that you know is being targeted unjustly, you know their human rights are being violated with racial profiling, and, and you know that they shouldn't even be in there in the first place for, for nonviolent so-called drug crimes, but you continue to support the system by working in the system. Okay, what's that old saying? Well, I think some of you guys have put out a meme about it. I've seen some memes about it, you know, uh, 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 making the excuse, you know, of working in a system like that, you know. So it, it's like, man, it, it's just so frustrating that not only that people on the outside who who turn a blind eye to this and, and not worrying about it until it's one of their relatives and then they're contacting us and saying, you know, I need y'all to help me highlight this case. Uh my 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 brother was murdered in prison by guards or my mother was raped by prison prisoners and, and yeah, you know what I'm saying? When it happens to you, then you become part of, of, of the movement. And that's just that's just a sad commentary on this society that number one I, I mean come on let's just say the nazis then why they hunting down nazis oh because they was a guard at a, a concentration camp they were just following orders all right well if it's not an excuse for a nazi guard it's not an excuse for a prison guard because you're seeing it every day even if you're not participating in the abuse so that's all that's what my thoughts on it you know uh, we've discussed this on many occasions and pointed out how this change came to be. In 1865, the 13th Amendment came out. In 1866, South Carolina opened its first federal prison, immediately starting with the Black Codes. The question in 1864 was not, how do we end slavery? It was, how do we pretend to end slavery? And the way they accomplished that was by calling people criminals instead of slaves or blacks and then putting them in with criminals so you could not tell the difference and then criminalizing their lifestyles the things they did the things they were unable to do and that is how the transfer came along which is what we see right now people sitting in these cells going through hell being tortured and murdered and maimed on levels that you haven't even dreamt of just a few stories we told you is just a small portion of it and because they have this title, criminal, no one seems to have any compassion for them. They don't care. It doesn't matter if you were in there for a ticket, an unpaid parking ticket, or because you didn't pay your child support, or because you harassed somebody and, and some vague charge like that. None of that matters. Once you get that title, criminal, you're done. Now, most of these criminals are people of color. So that's another problem right there. And you can see how it ties in together to the decisions made in 1865. Yeah. That's the greatest lie ever told, man. It's the 13th Amendment. The whole world believes that this country really um, abolished slavery. And, and then you're out there job hunting um, and you can't find a job. AT&T won't hire you to do their customer service costs. You know what? They got slaves to do that. Uh, Walmart won't hire you 
to deconstruct all of the uh, products that people have returned to their store so that they can repackage it, resell it, uh, however they're getting rid of it. Well, they won't hire you to do that because they got slaves to do that, mm-hmm. okay? Um, yeah, so, man, this is it. Every time I do this program, um, well, a lot of programs that I do, but, <laughs> man, it just, I get, I get angry, man. I get angry. I try to keep a even kill emotionally, but when you really think about the totality of it all and you think about the lies that have been told, man, I don't see how you cannot get upset. So, I mean, mm-hmm. getting upset all the time ain't good for your health. So I got to learn, you know, to just be, be more non-emotional, uh, while at the same time still working on these issues. It helps with me to be able to focus because I see the tragedies every day, day in and day out. I write about them and share them with the people that I know so they can understand what's happening. Uh, but I try to just focus on what I'm here to do, not what necessarily what's happening while I'm here. Because if I start beating myself up, Scotty, for all the names I can't remember who died, for all the people whose cases are still pending that I haven't reported on since the incident happened, for all... The kids out there and women out there, men out there who are suffering in their stories and they're sending them to me and I can't get them out. If I started beating myself up like that, I'd be beating myself to death. So I have to remember, I'm here to help facilitate an end to modern day slavery, however that's going to happen. And it's going to be tragic along the way because it's a tragic tragedy occurring to us on a scale that we have never even thought of. And uh, I just have to keep focusing on that, on the end game. Well, where are we moving to from here, gentlemen? I think we uh, should skip our other stories. We can share my new abolitionist radio, and let's go into some good news and make everybody feel better. Uh, you had a genius idea. Uh, you offered us a couple of them, as a matter of fact, uh, profiling somebody from the uh, uh, Kill by Police page, Black Death page, or... Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, before oh, the exonerated. Before y'all announced that, before y'all announced that, let's tell you know why we had to come up with a new segment. And the reason <laughs> we had to come up with a new segment is because for fifty weeks straight on this program that we did a program, I don't think we've ever missed a program, have we? No, no program has been missed. Oh. Well, no, no program has been missed. That's okay. right. So. 50 weeks straight, we have reviewed each state constitution to see what it says about slavery, as well as to see what it says about abolishing, you know, the government. Um, so that is why we had to come up with a new segment. We didn't think that, you know, it would be uh, productive on our part to go back and just start over with Alabama. Uh, so I just want to say, say this, you know, um, they are in the archives. Uh, like Max often says, we have a huge depository of documented evidence that, you know, slavery, modern day slavery, human trafficking is going on. But that, so we had to come up with a new segment since what was our last, what was the last state? Wyoming? Wyoming, yes. Yeah, that was the last state. We went in alphabetical order. So now we are doing a new segment and y'all go ahead and introduce it. Well, we definitely went out with a bang with Wisconsin and Wyoming, you know, dealing with the sheriff from Wisconsin. That was uh fabulous. But, you know, I don't know if you guys agree with me on the name, but I just love the way it sounds, uh, calling it our Riders of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. Um, what do you guys think? I mean, that's what it is. That's, that's what, what it is. The, the, uh, the 
district attorneys that are involved in creating the the uh, what they call them integrity the investigation and integrity units um the brother in Dallas and uh, brother Ken Thompson in, in Brooklyn, I come right off the top of my head, but that's what we've been calling them as conductors on the under, underground railroad because this is slavery and they are helping people get to freedom. Get to not so, mental freedom, physical freedom. Physical, right? <laughs> you know what really? I mean? You don't like mental stuff. There's people physically enslaved. <laughs> Sad. So yeah, I'm all for the name. That's fine. We uh, these these are important stories. And I feel like they, they really, it's just another aspect of telling the story in a, in a real three dimensional, like wholly encompassing way, showing people these profiles and connecting the dots. Like we've talked about crooked cops, Scarcella, uh, Louis Scarcella on here over the last year and a half, um, keeping, you know, guys like him, John Burge, keeping these crooked cops names in people's minds and hopefully in their mouths so they will tell other people what they've learned. So I love this segment already. I hate that it happens, but I want to shine light on this. I just love the idea that, you know, these people have got freedom finally after so many years. So uh, I guess I'll introduce the first one. Uh, Today, we begin our first profile of riders from the 21st Century Underground Railroad. Ricky Jackson spent 39 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. It was the longest sentence given for a wrongful crime conviction in American history. And New Abolitionist Radio salutes the conductors of the 21st Century Underground Railroad and today's writer, Brother Ricky Jackson. Um, I'll read a little bit about the story of Ricky Jackson, which I got from thegrio.com. And it says, Ricky Jackson spent 39 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. It was the longest sentence given for wrongful conviction in American history. In 1975, Jackson and two friends were sentenced to death after a money order salesman was shot to death during a robbery. We were innocent, and they were about to murder us for something we didn't do, Jackson said. He was 18 at the time of his conviction. Although there was no physical evidence linking Jackson and his friend to the crime, there was an eyewitness, a 12-year-old named Edward Vernon. They knew that I didn't see anything, Vernon said. Everybody knew it was a lie. Vernon testified that he had seen Jackson pull the trigger despite being blocks away on a school bus during the crime itself. Vernon wanted to help the police and finger Jackson because he knew Jackson from his neighborhood. But when Vernon would not, could not pick Jackson out of a lineup, police began to spoon feed him information. For a lot of years, I really hated him for what he did to us, Jackson said. But I knew I had to do this because I desperately want to move forward with my life. And the only way I can do that is to forgive him. So when Vernon decided to come out with the tree of the, uh, with the tree several weeks ago, Jackson knew he had to meet this man face to face. Took a lot of courage to do what you did, Jackson said. Vernon, as they met inside a church, thank you, man. I'm sorry, sobbed Vernon. It's all right, brother. We were both victims, man. It's all right. I do forgive you, man. I wanted to be here personally to tell you that Vernon was unable to speak through his emotions. And we salute you once again, Brother Ricky Jackson. God bless you and enjoy your freedom. Salute, brother. 39 um, years. I just I just feel bad that we couldn't get him out sooner, man. You know? All of them. I mean, that's a... All of them. These really stories, bad. man, are ridiculous. Yeah. Like I said last week, and I will say it again. You know, is that what's it going to take? A civil war? 
Because if it's going to take a civil war, man, I'm, I'm ready to ride or die for the cause. And, you know, people, I just want to be realistic about it. Again, these people are making billions of dollars annually. Okay, billions of dollars annually. Slavery was never abolished in this country. It was founded on slavery and land theft and genocide. It was always been a major part of the economy, and it still is. And so there's just too much money being made that, you know, these people are just going to, I'm going to persuade them with moral arguments. You know what I'm saying? And, um, you know, John Brown was a preacher and he was out there preaching and people weren't persuaded by his moral arguments. So he had to put some people to the sword. You know what I'm saying? And I'm just wondering if it's going to take that in this country. You know, uh, hundreds of thousands, I heard people died allegedly to end slavery i'm sure the black soldiers again i'm reiterating what i said before but uh you know many many formerly enslaved africans took up arms or were allowed to take up arms so that they could end it that's what they were fighting for some of them irish was just snatched off the boat you know and just giving a gun and and promises and they and, and some of them even got angry about it you know those damn negroes uh you know what i'm saying but Regardless of whether they fought in that war willingly or unwillingly, their their blood has been betrayed. It was betrayed by that great traitor, uh, Abraham Lincoln, the great deceiver is, is what we call him, who who negotiated him in the Republican Party, negotiated with those Confederate states to allow them to continue slavery by another name. And there's a documentary and a book. Uh, called slavery by another name now you go watch that you go watch that film or you read that book and then you tell me abraham lincoln or who they call honest abe all right is is possibly one of the the most uh uh lioness <laughs> and figures that you will find in history one of the most dishonest the most, you, you know what i'm saying man right. that was a stem of massive proportions to pull that off wow yeah. so i would say that lincoln nixon and reagan are three presidents who has done more damage in this country through slavery and human trafficking than any other president uh that i can think of Wow. So, you know, think about that. And so if it took a civil, a civil war back then, you know, if it came to that, you had to ask yourself, you know what I'm saying? You know, would you support the cause? So we'll, you know, you'll, you'll look in the mirror and say, if it came down to a civil war, which side would I be on? You know, so I, I mean, I think, I think, you know, it is a war, a war worth fighting. Okay, well, if it had to came, we trying to do it in a peaceful manner. I will prefer it be in a peaceful manner, but you know, I don't want to be. I don't want my great 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 grandson, you know, um, hundreds of years later, you know, doing new abolitionist radio, still trying to abolish slavery and human trafficking. I, let me shut up, man. For I, you know, I hope that we don't have to go through a civil war. But every time this issue has been addressed, that's what. Our history shows us it leads to uh, from the American Revolution to the Civil War, both about the same thing, uh, freedom. And I'm hoping it doesn't go that way. And, you know, I've been hearing a lot of people who often casually say 
when slavery ended or why slavery ended. And they put out videos that say this in one simple sentence without understanding the truth of the matter and mislead people, you know. So it's our job here to try to counter that narrative. And uh, I think we're doing somewhat of a decent job on it at the moment. But yeah. do even reach even more people if if people just make a commitment to educate. We're in the education phase right now. I don't. We don't have the audience of a Steve Harvey morning show. We don't have the audience of a Rush Limbaugh afternoon show. Uh, we don't have the, wise. Yeah, we don't have the audience of a John Stewart, uh, da- the Daily Show. We don't have that kind of audience. All right. Uh, so it is up to each and every one of you who hear this message about abolitionists to then go forth and spread that message and convert more people to the cause. Amen to that. Well, we're coming up on our next last segment, which is our abolitionist in profile. Our, would one of you gentlemen like to handle that? It's a little bit long today. If you want to shorten it along the way, I guess you could do that. Would one of you brothers like to ha- handle that? I can read it. Mom okay. bet. All right. <clears throat> gentlemen, gonna... this, uh, our abolitionist in profile this week is Mom bet from 1742 to 1829. All right. Say, say that one more time for us. Yes, you. sir. I'm trying <laughs> to find <laughs> my music, man. Y'all bear our with abolitionist me. Abolitionist in profile this week on New Abolitionist Radio is civil rights activist Mom bet 1742 to 1829. <laughs> Elizabeth Freeman, known as Mum Betts, was the first slave to successfully sue for her freedom, encouraging Massachusetts to abolish slavery. Mum Betts was born a slave in 1742, spending her young adult years in the household of John Ashley in Massachusetts. When Ashley's wife attacked her, Betts appealed to local abolitionists who brought her case to the courts. Betts was granted her freedom and 30 shillings in damages in 1781 with the case Brom and Betts v. Ashley. Betts became a paid servant and raised a family on her wages. As an abolitionist, she had been a former slave. Born somewhere around 1742, she was known as Mum Bet. She proved to be a driving force in ending the slave trade in the new Commonwealth of Massachusetts when she had successfully sued, becoming the first African-American woman to win her way out of slavery. Like so many who were born into slavery, little is known about her early history, such as when or where she was born. What is clear, though, is that in 1746, she had become the property of of wealthy Sheffield, Massachusetts resident John Ashley and his wife, Hannah. Bet and a younger woman who may have been Bet's sister Lizzie had previously been the property of Hannah's family. When she married John Ashley, it seems Mum Bet and Lizzie were given to the couple. Ashley was a strong supporter of the American Revolution and claimed to have the largest farm in town. His wealth was built in large measure on the backs of a small group of slaves whom he owned. Around him, though, the world was changing. As the American colonies staked out their independence, the abolitionist movement began to gain some headwind in Massachusetts. Even as early as 1700, the Puritan judge Samuel Sewall, was, who was instrumental in protecting, the, in prosecuting the Salem witch trials, wrote a piece called The Selling of Joseph that called into question the practice of owning other human beings. 
1773, Boston blacks organized a petition against slavery. It was turned down, but just seven years later, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts completed its constitution, the first state in the Union to do so. In it was the guarantee that, quote, all men are born free and equal and have a certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights, unquote. Ashley, by all historical accounts, had an even temper. His wife, however, did not. As the story goes, Hannah became quite angry one day with Lizzie and went to attack her with a fiery, hot kitchen shovel. But in an effort to save her sister, Mum Bed stepped in front of Lizzie and weathered the blow herself. The attack left a permanent scar on Mum Bed's face. More importantly, though, it propelled her to leave the Ashley home and seek the assistance of Theodore Sedgwick, an abolitionist attorney and former and future U.S. senator who lived in the nearby town of Stockbridge. Mumbet hadn't just fled out of fear, though. Through all the talk she'd heard around the Ashley home about the rights in the colonies, Bet had come to believe that she'd been guaranteed some rights of her own. To her ears, the new Massachusetts Constitution extended its protection to all people in the Commonwealth, even slaves. In Sedgwick, she found the perfect person to represent her. He was looking to mount a legal attack against the practice of slavery, and through Bet and another slave attached to the cause, he had discovered the perfect test case. On August 21, 1781, Brom and Bet v. Ashley was first argued before the Court of Common Pleas. It took only a day for the jury to find in the plaintiff's favor Bet and Brom were freed and awarded 30 shillings in damages. Ashley appealed the decision, but quickly dropped that case. While he pleaded with Bet to return to his home as a paid servant, she refused, choosing instead to work for Sedgwick's family. Another important legal challenge headed up by African-American leader Prince Hall involved three men who were abducted and taken slaves to the West Indies. Their case, along with Betts, pushed the slave trade in Massachusetts to its final days. The slave trade was officially ended in the Commonwealth on March 26, 1788, making it the first state in the Union to abolish it. Meanwhile, Bet, who had changed her name to Elizabeth Freeman, grew incredibly close to the Sedgwick family, working for them for several years as a domestic servant. She saved enough money to eventually build her own house, where she raised her family. Some 100 years later, her great-grandson, W.E.B. Du Bois, used his own writing to delve deep into the terrible impact racism had on all sectors of American society. Mum Bet lived until her mid-80s, passing away on December 28, 1829. She was buried in the Sedgwick family plot in Stockbridge. Through Abolitionist Radio gives a salute to Elizabeth Freeman, also known as Mum Bet. Salute. Most definitely, most definitely, most definitely. Um, salute to Mum Bet. And the song is perfect. Fight the power, man. Fight, <laughs> yes. fight every damn time. I figured out a way that we can rehash uh, what the state constitutions say instead, instead of making it a segment. She was in Massachusetts, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. What does the state of Massachusetts say uh today? I can't recall. Um I'm looking now at the Massachusetts um constitution and I'm not seeing anything in relation to slavery. Do y'all guys remember if it um uh, 
um, mirrors the 13th Amendment or? I know I can't say I, that I remember off the top of my head. I remember percentages. I remember about uh, 40% I'd say didn't have anything in them. Uh, 10% had some unusual things and half of them had their own version of the 13th Amendment. I wonder if they allow for, I wonder if any po- private prisons are operating are up there. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm looking at the Declaration of Rights of the Inhabitants of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Um, blah, blah, blah. Let me do a quick speed read. And no, I'm not seeing any reference to slavery in here. Okay. So if I don't find, if you don't find reference to, uh, either abolishing slavery, prohibiting slavery, any kind of language like that in a state constitution, then that means what guys? That it reverts to the 13th amendment of the United States of America as the law of their state. Exactly. So yeah, I just, um, went through pretty much most of them. Um, usually that's like in the first two, one or two you know, uh, articles or whatnot, or in the so-called Bill of Rights. And it's not, it just says nothing about slavery in it. So, yeah. Yeah, keywords like slavery, indentured, uh, prisoners, prisons, uh, just do searches on keywords like that, and you'll find out what they say or don't say about them. Now, it does say that people have a right to alter the government and to take measures necessary for their safety, prosperity, and happiness okay amen well uh that's one of the things that we do every week here is we show historically and presently how this is an ongoing fight and we showcase the heroes of that fight and we've shown people that they come in all uh walks of life from wealthy people who uh financed the underground railroad to those who had nothing but the shirt on their back and led others through jungles and forests and over across five states in order to get them to freedom. Death by a thousand cuts. That's what it's going to take. Clearly, that's what it's going to take, and it's likely to take also what uh, Scotty has brought to our attention. Some significant revolution uh, among the people. As, As we talk about week to week, there's just too much industry tied up in this there's too much wall street profiting tied up in this there's too much corporate profit too much freedom given to people that are making you know millions and tens of millions hundreds of millions billions of dollars there's too much freedom given to them to enslave others to get that so they have the resources and and it's going to take something that's ugly so you know, Unless somebody's I, willing to become a scapegoat and say, look, it's all me. I did this to your country. I enslaved all these people. And then we get to publicly, I don't know, execute them or I don't know. I mean, it can all be avoided now. Congress has the power to amend the 13th Amendment and adopt the language of the United Nations that says that slavery in all its forms is abolished. All right. And, you know, and they could end the practice as easily as Ronald Reagan privatized slavery. They can easily end slavery. So, um, you know, maybe they need to hear more grumbling in the streets or, or I don't know what it's going to take, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to come down to violence is what is what I'm saying. 
you know, they can easily do this. So, but if it takes violence and people start using violence, then, you know, they have nothing but themselves to blame. You know, who, what person in a, what moral person in their right mind is going to sit around and hear and watch and know that their children are subject to being enslaved at any time? You know what I'm saying? I no, you know what I'm saying? Ah man, let me shut up before I get well, myself in trouble. I do want to make two points. One, Johanna, that was genius again, uh, to come up with that idea for the segment. I look at it as a hopeful thing. So thank you very much for that. Um and secondly, I just recently you know, people have been talking about when slavery ended, as I said, so it made me come up with this idea about writing a fictional story that shows what happens the day slavery ends. And I'm working on it right now. I think it's almost done. I got a few people critiquing it. I'm looking forward to sharing it with you brothers when you see it. It's not my plan of what's going to happen. It's kind of a projection of what could happen and how it will affect us, things like that. But I'll leave it to everyone to read once it's finally done and I share it. And it'll be entitled The Day slavery ended i don't know if everybody's gonna like it but it's gonna be out soon right on right on well, well fellas another powerful one we're gonna wrap it up and yes sir back back in the trenches back in the research back in the streets and, <laughs> and uh, you know what we're gonna officially have to, we should officially just make this a two-hour show in 2015 because we keep skirting with two hours all now since we've been on it's just it's necessary i think but nonetheless we're at the end of the segments where we just give our final statements for the evening. Uh, either one of you brothers would like to leave the audience with something to think about? Yeah, I, I'll just quickly, cause, you know, I can go on these diatribes, but I'll just say again, you know, George, our guest tonight, I don't want to butcher his name, but, um, you know, George, our guest tonight found what he found what he was observing in the system to be so repulsive, to be so, you know, just evil. Then he can no longer work in it and he quit and now is, you know, I guess, you know, working on his own. He's an author. He's trying to sustain himself through selling, uh, the book. But I mean, he was not, he just decided I'm going to quit. I can't do this no more. I have to quit. This is wrong. And not only did he quit, he is now actively out there working to expose this evil, corrupt system. And if we did not participate, if, 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 you know, enough people didn't participate and just stand by idly, idly and, you know, uh, participate this by doing nothing, uh, it wouldn't go on. I mean, the system can't run itself. You get what I'm trying to say? The system cannot run itself. It needs cops out there to, you know, to round up the slaves and they, it needs, you know, the prison guards to watch these people while also they, you know, doing all this abuse and stuff like that. I mean, it, it does not work without our consent. It does not work without people actually doing the job. And so, you know, I like to say, you know, hopefully we will reach one day a, what do they call it? A, a mass, uh, um, uh, well, what critical is that? Mass? Critical mass. Thank you, Max. One yeah. day we will, we hope in it that they will come soon that we will reach critical mass. And, you know, I, my grandson, when he grows up, won't have to live in fear 
or be in fear or, you know, the circumstances won't exist to where he could be put in slavery. Because, I mean, uh, I don't know how many more decades I got left in my life uh, for this fight, but I just hope, you know, that we can end it before our grandkids uh, become adults. Word. Well said, Scott. Agreed. Agreed. <clears throat> I agree with everything Scotty just said. Um, I'm in this for my future generations, sons and nephews and nieces and, you know, all the young men that are coming up in this, you know, in this generation. Um, my future is tied up in this. Um, so it, it's, it's just, it's imperative people that you share this message from a place of passion. I don't know that we're going to continue to expand the movement to any significant, for any significant use by being shocked and awed and, and grossed out and, and, you know, just so taken aback by the inhumanities and that's still not connecting with your passion. When you have passion about something, there is nothing that stands in your way. This is how societies are built. This is how the, the industrial revolution came about, the, the age of, of reason and all these different eras that we know about historically came to pass because the multitude of people became impassioned about things, specific things that people felt so much passion about. And that's what they spoke about. That's what they thought about. That's what they prayed about. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were studying, researching, eat, drink, sleep. That was their concern. The people they wanted in their lives had to be concerned with that also. So you didn't have to convince people to take on Tupperware and televisions and, and conveniences and what things that brought about the Industrial Revolution. You didn't have to get people to care about ending children working in sweatshops and and create, you know, measures that made things better, streamlining productivity and all these things we brought about because all it took was seeing little children being abused like this. All it took was knowing someone who got their arm cut off because there was no safety on the machines they worked at. All it took was uh, plagues kicking off because it wasn't cleanliness standards. Different things have brought about massive systematic changes because people gave a damn. That was your life that was involved in that. That was your time to say, look, we're not going to have this anymore. We're not going to keep having people dying in this way, being abused in this way, being treated this way, being poor like this. We're going to do something. So that's all we're missing in the abolitionist movement is a concern like people had when they had to clean up the, the, the I don't know, food processing industry, when they had to clean up the, the assembly lines or clean up the way that they handled, I don't know, the fire departments, how that, just whatever it is that happened over the years that people got it together. Their passion was about this. They said no more. And mm-hmm. they came together and they made a change. I'm trying to appeal to you that it's not your intellect. It's not your understanding. It's not the way that you feel horrified when you hear these stories. It's not these other things. Those are external of the one thing you have to have that gives life to and function to 
all of those other emotions. You have to have passion. You have to have a passion about ending slavery. You have to believe it's real. You have to believe it's wrong. And you have to believe that you have a stake in ending it. You have to be passionate, people. Use your passion to bring somebody else back to this program next week. We're going to continue to tell the truth. We're going to continue to, to lay it out there without any kind of fillers or chasers or dis disclaimers. It's coming out. We're going to put it out there, put the sunlight disinfectant on the infection. So bring somebody back by your passion. Be excited at the water cooler. Be excited at choir practice. Be excited at the, the parent-teacher meeting. Be excited in the grocery store when you mention to someone about these subjects. Be excited and passionate about this. Like, hey, you can make a difference. I need your help in doing this. Don't you see what's happening? Be a fanatic about this. <laughs> yes. Make them think you're crazy. That's it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Peace to the abolitionists. Death to the oppressors. To the oppressors. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. Um, yeah, that's well said, bro. Cause I definitely make people think I'm crazy. They don't, you know, it's hard for me to have a normal conversation anymore because the passion is there so deeply. I want my people freed. I want them out. I, you know, I know everybody wants justice, but along with the justice for the dead, there are, there is freedom necessary to be gotten for the living. You know, they're suffering right now. Don't wait till they're dead and then want to cry for justice. You can get them out right now. You know, the people that are being raped and murdered and brutalized that we talked about today are in there because we allow them to be in there. We need to ask for more. My final statements, uh, one, I'm going to give you a quick plug, and I think it's a really big uh, step for the abolitionist movement. This Friday, I'll be on the African Network Television, and uh, it's an international uh, format where I'll be talking about abolition in the 21st century and how we're fighting to end this modern-day slave trade. It was arranged by Brother uh, East Stanley Richardson. Big shout-out to him. It'll be 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the African News Television Network. I provided the links on the new abolitionist radio page on Facebook. Now, I want to bring us back to some things that's been going on just recently. You know, the media was ecstatic to have another story to fill their time with other than the mass protests across America against police brutality and mass incarceration and modern slavery is that this white supremacy doctrines are affecting minorities in other nations just as much as it is affecting us. So instead of marginalizing and ignoring modern day slavery and justice and brutality, they have actually introduced us to our allies. We recently found out that in France, French Muslims make up 60 to 70% of the prison population. Here in America, blacks and Hispanics and natives make up 60 to 70% of the prison population. The only difference, to be honest with you, is that in France, the Muslims can't be identified. Here in America, you can't stop being brown, red, or black. Keep that in mind. It's no coincidence that those numbers are similar. And also keep in mind that abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know peace. Peace. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.